Welcome to Trauma from the Frontline. My name is Bruce Perham. I'm a counsellor who has provided counselling and training to correction officers and frontline responders for over 15 years. In this series, I will be interviewing a wide range of psychologists who work in the trauma field, key stakeholders in the emergency sector, and frontline workers who have experienced mental health and at times trauma reactions due to the field in which they work. Uh, Hi, welcome to uh, the podcast, Trauma from the Frontline. Today I have a guest, Dr. John Arden from Santa Fe in New Mexico, USA. And I'll just say a little bit about John. Um, John is a neuropsychologist who has over 40 years of experience providing psychological services and directing mental health programs. John has written extensively on neuroscience and evidence-based practices within psychotherapy He is a world leader in his field and regularly travels to Australia and other parts of the world delivering training and speaking at international conferences. Uh, Welcome to you, John. I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do it. Um, I thought I might start. I'd be interested to just have your thoughts about as your career in psychology unfolded. Um, Where did you start and where are you now as as an opening question? Sure. You know, um, when I was a young man, like two years ago, uh, (laughs) uh, when I was, let's say, in my early 20s, I was very interested in, you know, meditation and yoga. And I traveled around the world, actually, uh, for one year. Uh, And I was, you know, sitting around in all these different religious groups and meditating and all that kind of stuff. So I was very interested in philosophy and and uh, what consciousness is and everything. And I became um, uh, very, uh, let's say, fascinated with the work of Carl Jung at the time. So I wrote down my dreams for about uh, nine years and uh, did some... um, uh, later work in, in terms of a publication in that area. But then I had to, you know, develop a profession. You know, you can't just sit around and philosophize. So I became a, a psychologist and worked in community mental health for quite some time. We were creating alternatives to inpatient units because we knew that long-term institutionalization is actually debilitating and infantilizing. Uh, it doesn't help people learn how to live out in the community. So in San Francisco, where I was in the 70s, uh, we were involved in all these uh, deinstitutionalization efforts and residential treatments and all that. So I became an administrator and all that during the 80s. And then later, uh, as a licensed psychologist, later in neuropsych- into neuropsychology, um, I started uh, developing w- one of the largest training programs in the United States and really needed to take a look at what the evidence-based practices are. In other words, what works best when somebody's experienced trauma or depression or whatever. And then realized that all these theories were nothing without the brain. (laughs) So I really investigated uh, how the therapy techniques were relevant in terms of what we knew about uh, anxiety and depression in the brain and all that. And then more recently, uh, I've uh, enlarged the picture. uh, And you and I exchanged some emails uh, just recently, and you were reading my book, Mind, Brain, Gene. Uh, I'm very fascinated with how the immune system, how um, genes get turned on and off, or metabolism and all that. And now to transition into trauma, because that's the focus of the discussion today, we know that people that experience trauma turn on their immune system inappropriately, and as a result, depending on when you experience that trauma, can then suffer from chronic inflammation in their brain, and then feel blue and negative and and everything else for extended periods of time and not know why I can't think clearly. Uh, so that's relevant, I think, to the population that you've been serving the, in, it, the, in the corrections uh, field. It's 100% relevant um, because often people will explain to me uh, those feelings or, and not understand them. And um, the number of times officers have said, oh, look, I've really reacted to this event, but it's by no means the worst event I've been through. 
and then sort of think, well, why am I reacting this way? And um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's totally relevant because most of us don't understand what's happening. Yeah, so when you experience some very uh, shocking and life-threatening uh, situations, um, uh, whether it be, um, you know, domestic violence or let's say if you're incarcerated and you're in prison and you're seeing people get beat up and whatever, raped, and, and uh, or uh, if you are constantly on guard, so to speak, because you are a guard, <laughs> wow, that's turning on your alarm system uh, constantly, which then turn on genes that produce more hyper-stress responses and your immune system. So none of this is independent from anything else. It's all interrelated. How have you found, John, the understanding of that? Um, in say, you know, part of what this podcast is about is to support frontline workers and help them to understand what's happening. At, at that higher complex level, what's the understanding of when we expose our workers to these situations as a part of their work, so we know that it's going to happen to them, is there an understanding at those higher levels in your sense that, hang on a minute, this is complex? Well, let's put it this way. We know that when a person's um, alarm system has been turned on repeatedly or one extreme time, uh, there is a residual memory of that. Uh, and that means, in a sense, now your stre stress response system, let's, let's call it your threat detection system, we, uh, technically, it's called the amygdala, but your, let's just call it in a down-to-earth way, your threat detector is on. Well, that makes sense. It ought to be on because you could be assaulted again or, or you might be in danger again. This is an evolutionary development. I mean, it's not like you could just turn it off because this network in the brain, this threat detector system, is ready for the next threat. And what that means is you're going to be hypervigilant and your false positives are going to be all over the place. In other words, you're going to respond in an extreme way, even though the situation is not extreme the next time, because it's better to be safe than sorry. Mm. And so, I mean, I, I've been around the correction system. At, at one time, even a forensic psychologist, and my father was a judge, my brother was a DA, district attorney. And uh, boy, I remember going to San Quentin. I, I don't know if you've heard of San yes, Quentin. Yes, yes, I have. Yep. It's, a, it's a pretty intense place. And the time I went there, I went there with 60 judges, and somehow they, they knew we were coming. <laughs> and but we walked into the, one of the... Um, um, uh, cell blocks oh my god the screaming the intense noise uh, for, for us just walking through was I can't imagine being there constantly and I saw the guards up on the different walks and everything standing there with their guns and, and everything and I'm thinking god those poor guys and some women are there listening to that constantly and I just kind of walked through uh, and so if you've already had trauma and the noise level, the threat is still there, man, you're going to be like a hair trigger. Yes. You're going to respond immediately, even though the situation may not be dangerous. Yeah, it, look, it's, it's, it's interesting because one of the things I've felt, um, it'll be the same in the States, I would think, but where officers are, are disciplined, um, police officers, um, correction officers, are disciplined because of excessive force. And it, it's quite, um, um, what's the word, uh, topical here. And, I, and it fits exactly with what you're saying, that if you're in that sort of environment, that you're hyper alert, and officers tell me all the time, they can't, they can't wind down even after three days off, they still feel hypervigilant. That to me, it makes sense that you then, your you capacity to be able to control those Im impulses is impaired. Is that? Oh, yeah. Well, let, let's just say that it's like a indelible memory system. And um, you can forget somebody's name. 
you can forget, you know, the name of this town or, you know, what event happened last Tuesday or something like that. But the emotional memory is a whole different story. Why? Because it's a different part of your brain. It's a part of the brain that we share with other species. And it's kept our species alive. It's kept, you know, dogs and cats and lions and you know, uh, deer and, and so kangaroos and, you know, it's kept everybody alive. And, and, but once you've been almost uh, killed, let's say out in the wild, you're going to be hypervigilant. Well, that, that residual uh, evolutionary um, development is part of us. And now we live in these, you know, complicated social environments some of us work in pretty dangerous environments. And we know that from first responders, you know, police officers, firemen, and, and also correctional officers in prisons. Uh, and it's super hard, like you just said, that you've heard several times that it, it takes a couple days or perhaps not even that. Uh, it, it, they don't get over their hyper response uh, after a couple days. Well, um, what do you do about it is really the big question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you asked earlier, how do you bring all this stuff down to earth? Uh, and so I was compelled working in the mental health and earlier in the forensics environment to bring things down to earth because a lot of people, you say amygdala, prefrontal cortex, it just goes right out their, their head. They don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Just what do I do? Yes. <laughs> and so there's a mnemonic that I like to use uh, called seeds. You plant seeds and cultivate seeds over a lifetime. Whether you're in a stressful environment, workplace environment, whether or not you're just one of us out here hoping to live a little longer, uh, or um, that you are uh, just a young person and you wanna be able to thrive. Uh, And so the five healthy factors that are encoded in the mnemonic seeds uh, turns out to be the healthiest factors that we could uh, um, cultivate uh, for multiple reasons. Your brain will last longer, but if you've been traumatized, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, let me just, as a sidebar, before talking to you, I've been uh, communicating with some friends in Ukraine because I've been there as a guest lecturer, and I'm on a regular daily contact with people in Lviv and also Odessa, and uh, t- talking about trauma. And, of course, they're going through a lot of yes. trauma right now because of the Russian invasion. And so, um, of course, the mnemonic seeds is, is difficult to translate into Ukrainian and to Russian, uh, most uh, of the Eastern Ukraine's or Russian speakers, but the concepts are the same. These five healthy factors, if you've been traumatized or you're in a workplace uh, stressful situation, you need these five healthy factors. And by the way, I wrote a book called Surviving Job Stress once <laughs> and, and, and led a group of a therapy group for 15 years in job stress. Uh, they were all people experiencing various levels of job stress. So these five healthy factors are critical. Shall I go through them? Yes, that'd be great, John. Yes. So, so think again, seeds, S-E-E-D-S. The first S is social. Uh, well, when people are uh, stressed out, let's say you had a really, really tough time at work and you need to kind of cool out and everything else, uh, most likely you don't want to be with people. <laughs> However, being with people that are comforting, that aren't going to be asking you about what you did that day, uh, whether it's going out to the movies, sitting there eating dinner, just taking a walk together or whatever, just having that that social contact has multiple effects, even in gene expression. I could go on and on about gene expression with regard to uh, social, uh, if you'd like a little later. We also know that your, uh, your brain responds uh, dramatically uh, to social support, if it is social support. Okay, first E, Exercise, aerobic exercise, it's probably the most powerful of all the seeds element. You need an aerobic boost 
for at least 30 minutes a day or your brain's going to suffer. Stress or no stress, you need to do that. Why? Well, as hunter-gatherers, we moved 10 miles a day. Until 11,000 years ago, everybody on the planet was a hunter-gatherer. We moved 10 miles a day. Who moves 10 miles a day now, unless you're in a car? Well, you need to get an aerobic boost. Uh, and so uh, I'm really lucky. I live on a ridge, and just to get to my mailbox is a mile and a half, or let's say uh, 2.3 kilometers up and down at 400 feet elevation change. Well, I get my aerobic boost that way. It just that's my minimal. You need to do that every day without a doubt. Okay, second E. Education. Well, what do I mean by education? Yeah, you don't need fancy degrees. That's cool. At least you structure your, your learning that way. But if you're not learning something new, you're thinking about the past. If you're not learning something new, you're thinking about your uh, warbles, your, your difficulties and everything else. You've got to open up your life into other areas and cultivate other areas, whatever it is. And the best bang for your buck, so to speak, is areas that you know nothing about. You build what we call cognitive reserve, meaning you, you connect up new uh, neurons that hadn't been connected before, and so later in your life when you lose neurons, you won't be losing as much because you have more on the bench, so to yes. speak. Okay, the D is diet. And the, the fact of the matter is, you in Australia, the United States, and much of the world, we, we have a crappy diet now. And it's corroding our brain. Uh, we eat too many simple carbohydrates and too many fried foods. And as a result, chronic inflammation develops. Your brain doesn't function very well. So diet is absolutely critical. So what does it come down to? And people might be listening going, well, what is a good diet? Well, just think Mediterranean or Okinawan diet. Cut out the fried foods and the simple carbohydrates. And, and for you, Chip, uh, fish and chips. If the fish is grilled, that's okay. But your chips, I mean, it's soaked in oil. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, so anyway, so a balanced diet is absolutely critical or you're going to experience more stress because your brain's not going to be able to handle it. Finally, sleep is the last S. And so we know so much more about sleep than we ever did before in terms of the architecture of sleep, in terms of what happens during various stages of sleep, uh, trauma with regard to um, uh, nightmares and, and all that. These are like nighttime flashbacks. And so uh, one of the big problems with sleep deprivation, especially with regard to uh, people with stressful environments, is they get prescribed or they go to the uh, uh, um, over-the-counter store, the pharmacy, or you call the chemist, uh, and get sleep medication. It screws up their sleep architecture. And as a consequence, they're not able to think very clearly the next day and they make bad decisions and there's another aspect to this that's so critical with regard to taking these garbage chemicals uh, and that is that you clog up the cleansing system that takes place in slow wave sleep so if we had time you know i could show you an actual image of a brain clearing out the the metabolites that build up through uh, super activated brain um, um, networks throughout the day. You need to clear that out, and that's what happens during slow-wave sleep. Your glial cells shrink up to about 30% of what they were before, and uh, uh, then you could see these metabolites flush your brain out into your cerebral spinal fluid. So what happens if you drink at night, drink alcohol at night? You screw this up. What happens if you take any of these medications over the counter or prescribed? You screw this network up. You don't clear it out. And so then people are saying, well, what do I do? Oh, you know, that's the only way I can get some sleep. Well, you're getting garbage sleep. And so there's a whole methodology that's behavioral called uh, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy for insomnia that relates to getting good quality sleep. So I could go on about any of these if you, if you like. Yeah, well, look, just a, a response that often when you know, I sit with people in all walks of life, really, not just correction officers, 
that when they go through trauma or they go through high stress, the first thing they do is chuck the seeds out. <laughs> they stop exercising. Um, they stop. They stop socialising. Um, I'll sometimes say to spouses, you know, what's your husband do? He sits in the back shed and drinks and won't go out and so they isolate themselves. They stop exercising. <laughs> they they it, it grind to a halt. And I, I can remember years ago when you are in Melbourne and, and you talked about... Um, that uh, people would come to you and go, oh, John, I'm not ready. I'm, I'm just not ready to take that step. And, you, and you'd say, well, perfect. That's the optimum time to do it in terms of the working your brain. And the number of times I've said that to people in terms of, well, only you can override those instincts to withdraw. Um, I'd love some comments around how, how can we help people I guess recognise the importance of not abandoning the seeds at a tough time. Yeah, I'm really glad that you remember that. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you, and there's a, I developed all these sort of pithy little sentences because the fact of the matter is when a person feels stressed out, depressed, you know, super anxious, whatever, they, as you just said, they don't feel like doing stuff that would make them better. Uh, and so, uh, in addition to describing how the brain works and how to rewire it, you need discomfort to rewire it. So I, I then realized, you know, I need to bring it down to earth a little bit and come up with these little pithy little things to say. And so I started saying, well, you got to do what you don't feel like doing, so eventually you'll feel like doing it. <laughs> and so, in a sense, that's how to develop new habits. Well, you know, if you're, I'm a skier and I'm looking up at the ski resort from here. And, you know, I know that taking more challenging slopes allows me to do it more comfortably the next time. Anything that you're doing and learning how to do uh, requires some discomfort initially if you want to get comfortable doing it. So, again... I'm asking you to do what you don't feel like doing so that you eventually feel like doing it. It's like any habit. It's like learning another language. I don't feel like practicing. Well, do you feel like making it easier later, riding a bicycle or, or whatever? You're going to have to fall down a few times uh, before you end up actually enjoying it. In, in terms of the people that you've seen with PTSD, and that's, um, you know, very keen to talk to you about that, um, where, you know, I, I read things in terms of, we mentioned alcohol, the relationship between PTSD and high alcohol um, intake or, or, you know, medication intake. Um, what's been your experience of seeing people with PTSD and then over time being able to take those steps to recovery or to start to do things that they've been disconnected from? Uh, let me answer the first part of your question first, where you were talking about alcohol, and then we'll talk about yes. what we do with people with PTSD. Well, alcohol is like gasoline on a fire. Uh, and so if you want the fire to go out, why get gasoline? So alcohol is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Uh, same with depression. Alcohol makes depression worse, even though for the first hour you might feel a little bit of relief. But with regard to um, uh, PTSD, we always, always, in any evidence-based uh, practice, uh, ask a person to get sober over a period of time before we start working with their traumatic experience. Well, let's talk about the traumatic experience, assuming a person is sober. And actually, what I also mean is being clean of the garbage of our healthcare system, which are the benzodiazepines, you know, Valium, Xanax, and all, I, I, you know, these are brand names. But anyway, uh, so think in terms of what we initially started talking about, the alarm system turning on and not being able to turn off. So we have, as human beings, these different memory systems. And what the problem is with PTSD is the memory systems get disconnected from one another. So let me just describe what these two memory systems are without 
getting too complicated with the technical terminology. One is called sort of declarative, meaning you can declare those memories. You could say, oh, I was talking to Bruce. Oh, okay. That wasn't that on a, uh, that was my Wednesday and that was his Thursday. That's a declarative memory. That's something I could recall, right? Or a Mm -hmm. name or, you know, and all that. Or the time we rode in a taxi together. That's an episodic memory. That's a different kind of memory system than your emotional responses to whatever might have happened to you, let's say trauma. Those are non-conscious, or we can call it non-declarative memory, because you don't go, oh, I I remember that feeling. Well, that's a declarative memory. You remember that feeling. When it comes up in with PTSD, like a flashback, it comes up automatically. It doesn't come up necessarily by you even thinking about it. It mm-hmm. might be a condition. So let me use an example. Uh, so I like to hike. And, uh, you know, i got the mountains right here, and I like to hike in the Grand Canyon, whatever. And so, you know, there are snakes around. you got plenty of snakes in Australia. <laughs> we got different types here. <laughs> uh, and especially in this area, it's more rattlesnakes and everything. If I was bit by a rattlesnake, uh, later when, I was hi- when I'm hiking, even my peripheral vision might pick up this long sort of... Uh, object and I could be walking along and all of a sudden whoa well why do I feel so uneasy why because there's a fast track to my threat detection system which creates a flashback same thing happens let's say with my friends in Ukraine especially in the south and the east of Ukraine because of the bombings um, if they hear a motorfi- motorcycle backfire They feel gunfire or a shell going off before they can go, what was that? Was that a gun or was that a motorcycle? That's the fast track to your threat detection system. Well, with all that considered, you know, your your implicit memory, your non-declarative memory, and your conscious-based memory, they get disconnected, meaning some, you know, like a loud noise, if you're a correction officer, you know, happens a whatever, you immediately feel the threat before you can think, is there a threat here? You feel it before you can think it, is what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. And so what we need to do is get the feel it and think it uh, parts of your brain to get reconnected. What does that uh, involve? That means then we've got to turn on the sounds or whatever they were uh, so you can acclimate and adjust to them again as long as they are non-dangerous because here's the problem with correctional officers or let's say soldiers in the south of Ukraine right now or in Syria where I I spent some time helping the Syrian refugees. Well, you don't want to have your threat detection system totally off because it's a dangerous situation. Oh, no. So uh, you want to have it practical. You just need to have it toned down a little bit. Uh, and so it's not like off or on for maybe you or I because, you know, I'm, I'm not in a war zone. You're not in a war zone. You're not a correctional officer. Neither am I. Uh, we we spent time in prisons as workers, uh, but we're we're not there all the time. So, a correctional officer or first responder, like a police officer, my my one of my sons was a police officer for a while, uh, have to learn to use this threat detection system in a practical way, uh, because you don't want it completely off. And in fact, nobody really wants it completely off. They just don't want it turned on when you don't need it on. And so that requires a graduated level of what we call exposure, which means basically turning on those sounds or whatever they are that turn on the flashbacks in a graduated and sequential way. 
I was thinking as you were talking, John, that the the issue of codes comes up quite a lot and officers um, will say to me sometimes they can have 30 or 40 codes a month where what you're describing is that uh, that threat system has to immediately kick in and they have to race towards a potentially um, dangerous situation. And I've been aware of then that means turning off your flight because flight isn't an option. It's turning on your fight to mm. get there. And then when you get there, you have to really restrain yourself from fighting, uh, if that mm. makes sense. Because, you know, yeah. in, in terms of fighting is a last resort or restraining is a last resort. Um, now, how, over, over and over and over again, you know, I'd be really interested in your thoughts. I say to people, well, you know, not fully aware of what that does to the brain and the body, but my sense is it's not great, but it's a part of their work. And they'll say to me, well, it's the job. I just have to do it. So it often gets minimised in terms of the impact of actually having to respond so many times when you don't know what you're running to. I love your thoughts on what... Yeah, well put. I I love the way that you describe that. Um, So I'm thinking of a a movie that described uh, the other side of this, and it was called The Hurt Locker. Do you remember that? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but yeah. Yeah, it's really a very interesting movie, and it was about uh, these uh, soldiers in Iraq um, and they were the the um, this detail of soldiers that would go in and and um, defuse a bomb. And so, if you can imagine just being in Iraq anyway, uh, you know, a war zone like that anyway, which is craziness. Uh, and then, not only were you a soldier walking around and not knowing who's going to shoot at you and everything else, and and deal with the craziness that we created there, the United States, uh, but the uh, then the the bomb de- uh, um, diffusers, God, they had to go in there and turn off the flight section, but they didn't have a fight. What are they going to do? Fight the bomb? No, they got to defuse the bomb. So they've got to turn off both the fight and the flight. Now, wow, that meant that they had to be, to some degree, a bit numb. And the movie, if you should see the movie, and I thought they did a really good job, uh, was there's a cost to being that numb because you, the, the main characters in the movie were so numb that they wouldn't, they didn't, the principal character wasn't able to adjust back to regular society because he needed that level of alarm just to feel alive. Now, so that setup uh, uh, is sort of an effort to say, well, somewhere in the middle is what we would call the resemblance of health because you don't want to be numb you know because let's say let's face it first responders you're on a SWAT team do you have SWAT teams in Australia sort of like the you know those guys are on really and here we have uh, more of them now because we have the crazy gun culture here and there's you know it's like the weather report you know who's shooting at who today (laughs) Uh, but uh, the uh, those guys that run in there have to be cool. Well, being cool means there's a part of you have to be a little numb. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the people that have never experienced that are the ones that are incredibly agitated because, wow, so where's the health? It's You can't be fight or flight um, completely because you've got to be in the middle. So corrections officers, police officers, uh, firemen, uh, and soldiers have to be somewhere in between. Not as bad as the Hurt Locker guys, you know, the bomb diffusers, uh, but and certainly not like somebody that's never had trauma before that is now has PTSD. Uh, it's If you're going to choose that job, meaning one of those pretty high-stress, dangerous jobs, you've got to learn how to manage the middle ground. And uh, so there's a technique that the um, International Red Cross and the uh, 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 
World Health Organization and other uh, large international organizations no longer use because it it actually increases the uh, PTSD and it's called uh, 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 oh oh darn it I just forgot the name of it it's uh, critical incident debriefing yes uh, and so okay well that's for uh, it's not useful for, let's say, you or I that's not in a regular you know, unit, like a group of soldiers or correction officers, first responders. On the other hand, with those groups, they need critical incident debriefing because they're a team. And the worst thing that can happen to anybody on a team is they feel isolated from the team mm-hmm. when something bad happens. And so... That's why many of the correctional organizations in the United States and and, uh, SWAT teams and police officers have a debriefing process where they're kind of, what happened in, you know, oh, yeah, you were here and I did that. Uh, It's a different kind of level of, let's say, uh, review and anticipation of another problem that's actually useful and practical that over a period of time builds up to some degree I, I mean you use this word very cautiously but calluses or, or toughness you know with your your skin mm-hmm. so to speak uh, because you're going to be in that in, in situation again uh, the question is what you're going to do about it you don't want to turn off uh, your alarm system but you don't want to be hypervigilant either you want to work as a team and you want to be able to have the alarm system turn on the entire team together. You don't want to be alone. Yes. Look, as you were talking, John, it made me uh, think of um, around the issue of self-harming where officers um, see that a lot and experience that a lot. Um, often they're not in personal danger. Um, it's it's a, a seeing a, a prisoner in that level of distress and and a whole emotional content. Um, And often what officers will say to me, and you'll say, well, how did you you manage that? Uh, No problem, mate. Used to it. Don't don't give a rat. I had one officer say, look, mate, they could cut their arms off, cut their legs off. I don't care. And I thought about that level of detachment, which picks up what you're saying, of that, that balance. And yet, I come across officers that are overwhelmed, particularly early in their careers, are absolutely overwhelmed and then the context around them doesn't quite pick that up through to officers that tell me, no, I don't, I don't blink. Now, my own anecdotal feeling is that at some point, those emotions are not lost to what you're seeing, but you just learn to ignore them, get back on the horse. Well, just really interested in your thoughts around... Um, does the emotion of what you're seeing need to be processed a bit more at the time than, no, I'm fine, good to go. Um, and, and officers say, yeah, I'm back there the next day, absolutely no problem, and um, good to go. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Because I hear it a lot. Yeah, you know, as you describe that, I, I'm thinking um, of how I found the people in these different mental health units uh, change in their personalities. So I mentioned uh, at one point I I was working in forensics, uh, doing psych evals of murderers and going to jails and and all that. And uh, then uh, before and after being with a so-called mental health uh, group of uh, people, uh, my colleagues. And what I noticed uh, about the, uh, let's call it the correctional mental health people, for, uh, which we here would call forensics or whatever, uh, is there was a toughness to them. They seemed, and I'm talking about the workers now, they seemed less warm. <laughs> they, they, they just didn't seem as sensitive and kind of more calloused and and everything else and i remember talking to people about this including my wife and and um, noting that uh, 
you know, part of them had to kind of turn off because they were always being played, you know, by the con- the cons or the you know the people in, uh, uh, inmates or whoever, uh, and so they were on guard all the time. And being on guard all the time, as opposed to just feeling this empathy for this poor, depressed person, you know, um, uh, it's a different set of psychological uh, uh, experiences being a helper in those two different, uh, um, uh, let's call them occupations in some ways. So I don't mean to pathologize the correctional workers, right? because part of that is a healthy kind of process. You need to protect yes. yourself. You need to be sort of suspicious of somebody playing you this and that. Uh, and so now uh, you not only are being played, but you also see people in incredible distress, like you described. Somebody that's a slasher. Uh, self-harm behaviors, uh, including suicide and and talk about suicide and and then wondering whether or not it might be in play here. He's he's talking about killing himself and I'm I'm so sick of this. I mean, they may not even consciously think about that, but more more, uh, likely thinking, is is he for real? You know, or is he trying to get some sort of extra something or other? Uh, So we have, as human beings, a whole, just a wide spectrum of different um, um, behavioral responses to one another. Uh, And in the correctional environment, uh, let's face it, by nature, it's with people who push the boundaries, who do stuff that put them in jail and prison, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it wasn't, for a lot of them, it wasn't the first time. They just happened to get caught later or something. That means then that you, the people that work with them have to adjust to not being worn down and too empathetic. Yes. Yeah, it's a, such a balance, isn't it? Of um, because uh, um, some so about five or six years ago, when I ran a series of groups, you know, people uh, of prison officers would table events that had happened ten years before, and then they'd say, "I've never talked about it before." I've, you know, I've, I've this it provided an opportunity mm. to to share it, and 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 office would often take that. I had a woman say, "This is my opportunity to share what I went through, and I'm I'm going to share it." Um, and that, so it just seems to be a battle to, to, to maintain that line of, I don't want to lose my empathy, but I I see this weekly or daily or, you know, how do I actually, um, manage it with really no, they're on their own as, as a group or as an individual. There's doesn't, there's nothing that really informs that um, and, and, and that's sort of, uh, I don't know, they're almost in, in no man's land with, I mean I actually interviewed an officer the other day for, for this podcast and and she's been an ex-correction uh, officer for three years and she said, I still dream of prisoners killing me mm. um, and, and and she said, I have these those dreams a lot and I wake up and I go, oh yeah, thank God I'm, I'm not in that that sort of situation. So it almost, I'd be really interested to comment, almost, and people, officers say, it, it does change you. Um, I'm different to who I was. So there's this sort of, I don't know, just complex uh, uh, um, uh, reactions to the work that kind of nobody puts their finger on. I don't know, does that make sense? Uh, the, um, the officers just well, don't sure. know what to do with it, you know. Yeah, and... Let me, let me say that um, the group that you described uh, and the people who said, geez, it gives me an opportunity to talk about this, and uh, to me, uh, highlights the problem uh, that this population, correctional workers, police officers, and so on, uh, need to uh, develop a better group support. That's why I was... Uh, bringing up uh, critical incident debriefing. Because uh, when you described earlier, 
you know, I'm good to go and all that kind of stuff. What that does is build up all this. It's almost having the gas pedal and the brake on at the same time. Well, there are going to be some costs to that. <laughs> and so uh, it seems to me the service that you're providing, Bruce, I mean, you know, the, the effort, the, your book, um, your support of this population is just so critically important. Why? Because this group of people develop this super callousness at a major cost. And so, and that is a cost not only for them, but let's face it, when you first, uh, uh, we first started talking about management not necessarily being as sensitive to these needs, uh, well, you know, this is a practical issue, too, because they, if, if I was a warden, let's say, or administrator, and, and I'd want to have more efficient correctional workers not uh, blowing off uh, and over-responding. <laughs> you know, it would make sense uh, not to have more problems, <laughs> you know, and so it's a practical issue. Uh, I don't want to have to have this high attrition rate, you know, all these people quitting because they can't handle it anymore. You know, so in many ways, what you're doing, the groups and, and your podcasts and everything else to increase the awareness of um, uh, how I don't mean to bring it down to just saying talking about it. I'm, I'm also talking about strategizing and uh, collectivizing. What I mean by collectivizing is, hey, we're in this together. And you, you, you last week you were the one. And this week I'm the. How do I deal with it? How what do you deal with it? It's really a group thing. And when a person gets stoic, I'm good to go. It doesn't bother me. I'm macho Billy, you know, or, or whatever. Yes. Uh, it has a major cost, not just for the person, but for the entire system. Yes. Um yeah, that 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 it does, and um, I, I just a, a, I sometimes think our brain. While we we need first responders, we need police, we need prison officers, we need paramedics, we need fireys, we need all the vital professions that we need. But is the brain just not kind of really designed to deal with repeated trauma over long periods of time? Are, are we battling? the fact that we're not really designed for it. And, well, and let, hmm. let's put this in evolutionary perspective. I mean, uh, you and I uh, and, you know, um, other people that have these nice, comfortable lifestyles that we get to philosophize and theorize and talk in intellectual ways. We're lucky people compared to all of our ancestors several hundred years ago. I mean, let's put, uh, put it really clearly. It wasn't a very safe world. <laughs> I mean, you think about all the history in terms of, uh, uh, you know, genocide. Uh, genocides... Uh, uh, it started to fade out to some degree in the 20th century. We still have some uh, going on. You could even call to some degree what's happening in Ukraine and especially Bucha and some other areas uh, genocide. My, I'm an Armenian, so I became an American in part because of a genocide, many of my relatives. Uh, but prior to the 20th century, God, that kind of stuff was happening all the time. Well, then... When you say, was our brains uh, prepared for this kind of stuff? Well, you know, think in terms of adaptation. Species, you know, gazelles and deer and kangaroo and lions. And, you know, we have these threat detection systems for a reason, to keep us safe. Now, uh, on the one hand, you could say that, well, uh, let me just speak from my own perspective. My life is pretty comfortable now and, until I, you know, go down, you know, we got a crazy gun country, culture and all that. But I don't have to turn on my threat detection system that often. 200 years ago, I would have. Right? And, you know, we had some laws that sort of came into effect. So, getting back to your question, are we designed to deal with danger? Yes. That's why we're still alive as a species. Is there some cost to it? 
Yes. Now, we unfortunately have some workers in our society that are on all the time. That's not that practical. That's a look. I, I love your response because it's a, a really encouraging to think. Okay, historically, and I hadn't thought of it that way. We are primed to live in dangerous environments, but then the need of if your occupation puts you into it, um, which it, you know it's not. It, it's a what's the word? It's a an added on. You know, it's not. If you weren't working in this field, you wouldn't be experiencing the trauma or you wouldn't have PTSD. But that's a very hopeful, I I love that in terms, okay, well, we have the capacity to deal with it, but there's a lot more that we actually really need to identify and inbuild. Now, that's a long, long sentence there. Uh, In terms of what can we do um, to, you know, police officer, correction officer, I'm in training, I'm about to... Um, uh, step into you know these roles. What do we need to be doing for people in terms of education? Because that seems to be the time where seeds really needs to be promoted. If you're going to go into this work, these are the things you need to do. And then your thoughts about what difference that might make. Because the majority of people haven't had it. You know, everybody that's coming out now with. PTSD, no one would have told them to look after themselves at the beginning of their careers. So just your thoughts around how important is it to understand that at the beginning and the risks psychologically and physically, and then are, are you hopeful about that if, if, if people can grab that and put it into their lifestyle, that it will actually make a significant difference in the longer run? Long question. Oh, sure. You know, um, uh, I mentioned my son was a police officer for a a period of time. And uh, he had a master's degree and has a master's degree in psychology. And he thought what he would do is become part of what they called the behavioral health unit in the Portland, Portland, Oregon Police uh, Department. And uh, uh, he, uh, as many of his friends and others uh, thought, well, you know, um, police, I'm just talking about police officers, but it relates to correctional officers as well, uh, uh, need some, from my perspective, his perspective, uh, needs some, uh, let's call it advanced training. I don't mean advanced in the sense that you need a bunch of fancy degrees and all that kind of stuff, but the kinds of things that you're offering uh, uh, Better self-care behaviors, and that's what he wanted to employ, but he quit. Why did he quit? Because his particular unit got defunded, and he thought, what's the purpose? I don't just want to be a police officer. I was going to be a psychologist in the police department. Um, and uh, But had they kept it going, the kinds of things that you're offering that we're talking about here, which include the seeds, uh, lifestyle behaviors, critically important because his job was, uh, as he saw it, was uh, to not only respond better to, let's say, mentally a homeless person or, or whatever, but also the colleagues, the, the fellow police officers, not to turn into these stoic, I'm good to go, man, you know, kind of people, but rather... Uh, um, be more of, let's call it efficiency, emotional efficiency or psychological efficiency in a complex and stressful environment. That's what needs to take place. And, well, if it's efficiency, you also need to bring it down to earth because many of the people that are working in corrections and uh, police departments and all that don't have a bunch of fancy degrees and they don't want to hear a bunch of big words. So they want to have it all down to earth. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm all for that. You can get across the same ideas with these mnemonics. And these, uh, uh, just say that there's some science behind it. If you want to get into that, I'll explain all those uh, factors. But uh, it's the off-duty behaviors that are so critical to the on-duty behaviors. That is such an important point and and um, uh, and it's just critical because so many officers will talk about the, the problems they have in, as they say, walking out the gate 
and then transforming into dad, husband or, or wife or uh, mum um, and just how hard that is. And mm-hmm. uh, um, so, and, and obviously that's where Seeds fits, you know. It's, and and uh, yeah, no, that really fits. Look, one last question, John, um, a generic one about um, counselling. Um, it uh, is still seen as a stigma. It's still seen, not by everybody, but there's still an element of um, only the weak um, need to get counselling. Um, it's changing. There's more of an awareness. But what does counselling actually do to someone that is dealing with trauma, is dealing with personality change? How can counselling help them? Um, really interested in your thoughts. Well, I'm glad you use the word counseling as opposed to therapy. I use both yes. interchangeably. And uh, somehow in the mental health world, the people that I've spent a lot of time with and, and all that, you know, as the director of this very large training program, they like the word therapy because it sounds so cool. Or psychotherapy. Oh, my God, that's so cool. Because I could be this or that or whatever. Uh, uh, so counseling is more down to earth. Well, there's another group of people that are not trained with these degrees like you and I have and all that, that are the coaches. Well, let's just call it um uh, I used the word earlier, efficiency. <laughs> There's probably a better word. Uh, uh, being a much, uh, if I'm getting uh, support, not only support because I'm weak, but rather I really want to become a person who is more effective in, in terms of what I do and not bring a lot of garbage home. That doesn't mean I'm screwed up. That doesn't mean that I'm weak. What this means is that I just want to get better at what I do and not be one of the casualties. So there's a paradox here. Oh, yes. you mean I'm going to counseling so I'm not a person that is damaged versus the other person that has the stigma attached to them. I go there because I can't handle it. No, I go there so I can handle it. That's a different yes. kind of way to look at things. Yes, that's a, a that's just so important that um, that you know, and I often say, if you break a leg, you go and get it fixed. <laughs> yeah, the, the, <laughs> you've been through a traumatic experience. You go and sort of talk about it. So, look, John, how how can people um, access your books and your published works? What's the best way for people to um, to access that? Well, um, you could go to my website, which is just basically uh, drjohnarden.com. Uh, so D-R-J-O-H-N-A-R-D-E-N, no spaces. So D-R-J-O-H-N-A-R-D-E-N at, uh, or, or rather, uh, .com. Or you can send me an email, which is really the same at gmail.com. But I... Uh, so the books are are there, and I have one coming out that's uh, meant to be the uh, what's well, a second edition of a, a book that's probably the, the most accessible. It's called Rewire Your Brain that came out about wow. twelve years ago, but now it's Rewire Your Brain two point <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it has a lot of the stuff that we were just talking about in a down to earth sort of way. Oh, that'd be and, awesome. And then a couple books on anxiety, which in a self-help uh, sort of book, uh, a workbook sort of uh, way. So anyway, just go to the website. Uh, and by the way, uh, I, I'm one of those people that hate it when I email somebody and they don't email me back. I'm compulsive about it. Uh, people email me all the time. I at least acknowledge that I got an email. You know what I mean? It's just respectful. So if you email me, uh, uh, same email address at gmail.com, uh, I'll certainly respond. I may not have a long, uh, a huge amount of time to give you if you have some, a whole bunch of questions and all that, but I'll respond in some way. I'm very much like you, John. I don't like it when people don't respond to me. <laughs> and um, I always, if it's, yeah, just let me know. And I really appreciate that. I can't thank you enough um, for sharing your thoughts and your experience. And uh, it's just been wonderful catching up again. And uh, I, I just know this will be very, very valuable for officers to watch and 
digest. So thank you so much. Well, great, great to reconnect with you and congratulations on your book. And I, I you know, I'm not just saying this to be uh, overly, you know, flowery. Continue what you're doing. What you're doing is so uh, important because I, I know the whole correctional uh, uh, system here uh, doesn't have enough people like you uh, to uh, support them. So uh, uh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And great to see oh, you. Oh, look, thank, thank you, John. And, and, and you're very safe. I've written one book. I, I don't think I'm going to make it to 15. <laughs> well, I'm working on think... two other ones simultaneously. My wife said, will you stop? Stop. <laughs> I, um, I just love so, learning. So, yeah, uh, yeah. No, look, I, I loved it, but I'm not going to get to 15. So take care and um, we will talk again. Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Trauma from the Frontline. If you would like to get in touch with me or if you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to email me at bruce at letstalkdifferently.com.au. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Trauma from the Frontline. If you are enjoying this series, please make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you find this information valuable, we ask that you rate the show five stars. It really helps the show grow and reach a larger audience. Until the next episode, please take care. If this episode has raised any issues for you, free counselling is available through your organisation.